Well, hello again, everybody. This is John Norris at Trading Perspectives. As always, we have our very good friend, Sam Clement. Sam, say hello. How's it going, John? Sam, I'm doing well. Maybe not as well as I'll be doing later on after we find out a little bit more about the topic for today, and that is bourbon. What do you think about that? You know, I'm not very familiar in the in the subject. You know, strangely not enough, bourbon, right? strangely enough, I'm not a very big bourbon fan or aficionado. I don't know that much about it. Really, the only thing I truly know about bourbon is whatever it was, Jim Beam White Label, uh, we mixed with ginger ale or cola back in the day for tailgates at football games. And I've really kind of missed out on some of the craze that's going on right now. Last week, we hosted an event, a very small event, very small event in uh, Montgomery, just a fistful of folks, but good folks, nice people. And a couple of our, um, couple of the folks there ordered a very specific kind of very pricey bourbon off the uh, off the shelf, and um, that's what they had. That was their live basin of choice. A couple of shots of bourbon, kind of neat. One was neat, and one was on the rocks, which I, you know, that's pretty strong stuff as far as I'm concerned. It is very strong stuff. And then also a couple of years ago, our company, Oakworth Capital Bank, bought a barrel of bourbon. Were you aware of that? I was aware. I haven't had any. We though. bought a barrel. I'm not sure I would enjoy it very much. <laughs> we bought a barrel of bourbon. And um, we made, I forget how many bottles out of it, but, you know, we have it there for, I don't know, Christmas gifts and the like. And so on the, to find out a little bit more about bourbon and find out why it's so popular and just, just all things bourbon in general. And while he doesn't pro- profess to be an expert on it, he's certainly more of an expert on it than I am. We have on the horn today. Lee Hammonds from Mobile, Alabama, Lincoln Lee, who was actually one of the people that helped us choose the bourbon in a barrel that we bought a couple years ago. And we're just going to ask him a few questions. Lee, you there? Good morning, John. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Lee. Now, Excited to have you on. Now, Sam, i got to tell you, now, uh, now, while Lee will not profess to be an expert on, uh, on bourbon, I do happen to know, having uh, spent some evenings with him, with uh, a common friend, Kenny, uh, and, and Lee knows who I'm talking about. I can I can attest that while he might not consider himself an expert on bourbon, I am certainly going to, after close observation, I'm going to say he is an expert on bourbon. Definitely more of an expert than you or I. <laughs> is that fair, Lee? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's all about what you like, John. <laughs> no, yeah, fair enough. And, you know, I, if me, I happen to like a red wine, maybe maybe a little bit of gin. You, I think, you Sam, I think you're a beer drinker. Mostly beer. And I think Lee's uh, tipple, or libation of choice, happens to be bourbon. And this leads me to my first question to you, Lee. Lee, I couldn't tell the difference between a Jack Daniels or something like that and bourbon. What is the real difference between a, a Tennessee whiskey like a Jack Daniels and a bourbon? I mean, what makes a bourbon a bourbon? John, really the, the primary difference between a Tennessee whiskey and uh, a bourbon, there can be variations in terms of proof and age, but the primary difference is pursuant to Tennessee law, the Tennessee whiskey undergoes one last filtering process at the end before they place it in a bottle, um, and it is a sugar maple filter uh, charcoal filter that they run that through, and that is the primary distinction between um, what the state of Tennessee calls Tennessee whiskey and what the Commonwealth of Kentucky refers to as Kentucky bourbon. Okay, well, fair enough. Does Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, do they have any specific laws regarding the distillation of bourbon? 
Um, they do. Um, you know, there there are some things that that are kind of common that they all have to. You know, all the the product that is made needs to kind of adhere to some certain things. It can't be a higher than 160 proof when it goes in the barrel. And well, let me start before it even goes in the barrel. Bourbon's going to be at least 51% corn as a part of its mash yeah. bill, which is the kind of the secret sauce that goes into uh, the ultimately goes into the barrel. So bourbon is going to be at least 51% corn, if not higher. Uh, can't go in over 160 proof. Cannot be um, when it's when you know after it's been distilled. It can't be over 125 when it goes into the barrel. Um, and then it's got to be uh, bottled at 80 proof or higher. That's a, that's a lot of math that goes into A lot into of this. numbers for some whiskey distillers. <laughs> that certainly is. So, so, so bourbon is a corn mash product. But they, when you when you boil it down, no pun intended, it's it's really kind of a corn derivative, as opposed well, to say like rye, which is obviously rye, and scotch, which I believe is a a wheat uh, derivative, and beer is a barley type deal, and obviously wine or grapes, and and vodka is just about anything that has sugar in it. So, bourbon is corn. The, the majority of bourbon is corn, that, that's correct. And then uh, as a general rule, most average shelf bourbons will have probably eight to 10% rye as well as a, as a part of the mixture of that corn. And there could be a variety of other things. Uh, wheat comes to mind that the uh, various distilleries may use to come up with their flavor profile for their bottling. So I guess since it is a corn derivative or from a corn mash or at least a 51% at a minimum, I guess that makes it, you know, I mean, obviously, Lee and Sam, kind of a uniquely American spirit you because know, of our, I mean, because our cultivation of corn here. Talking about this, corn really is the jack of all trades. In this or country. Jack Daniels of all yeah, trades. Yeah, sure. Isn't that bad? Like it. That's horrible. <laughs> it does kind of everything. Everything from corn syrup to food to whiskey. That's, that's, that's the whole spectrum. Now, Lee, I mean, we're already one question in, and you've already, I've already learned something I didn't know. But, but one thing I also want to know is, you know, some years ago, now that was finally taking off, we had people become sort of wine snobs. And, uh, you know, I never met a box of wine I didn't like. But, however, all of a sudden it's now, you know, people have you. I mean, oh, you can feel it on your tongue, and I can taste currants, and I can taste all this stuff. I'm tasting red wine. People are tasting all these flavors. I really, in any event, you know what I'm talking about. And the prices of wine went up and up and up as a result. Then it seemed like scotch went through the same thing. You know, when I was a kid, it seemed like Dewar's White Label was a very fine scotch. Now, all of a sudden, you have all these scotches that have been buried in the earth. I, Lord knows. Since uh, since Braveheart, I think, uh, and I don't mean the movie. I mean William Wallace. I mean it's it's been, and so and then all of a sudden, Scotch had sort of a snob appeal. Now all of a sudden, Lee, if I'm correct me if you think I'm way off base, it seems like bourbon is kind of going through. If if not that snob appeal, then certainly a renaissance, if you will, where it is gone from say, and this might offend some, more of a working man's type liquor to all of a sudden you've got some high end uh, high end cultivators here. Your to, to add on to that real quick, does it seem more regional? Um, I know us all being in the South, you might get a little different perspective on that than somebody up North or somebody out West, or is it really a um, nationwide and worldwide kind of phenomenon? Well, um, that's great. Those are great questions. Um, you know, the bourbon has become very, very popular, I would say, over the course of the last 10 years, depending upon who you talk to. 
Some people would say it started 20 years ago, but really the boom that you're referring to now, John, kind of started 2010, 2012, where you know, it became more mainstream. There have been a significant number, obviously, of, of bourbon bars, not just around the region, Sam, but around the country that have opened. And a couple of things that are, that are kind of fueling that fire, the younger generation, for sure the millennial generation, are, are really into it now. And part of that is because, you know, when, when we were growing up, bourbon was kind of your, kind of your, your dad's drink, the old man that smoked the cigar and, and had a bourbon, but it wasn't really cool, it wasn't really hip. Um, now, in many ways, because it truly is, most folks consider the American spirit, um, that's very authentic. And, you know, things that are authentic today seem to really be enjoying a wave of popularity. And since it is America's spirit, that authenticity that bourbon brings um, is not only popular with the, the, older, the older folks, but it's extremely popular with the millennials. And to answer the question, your question, Sam, really about what's going on nationally versus globally, part of the reason for the craze is full-on almost half of what the state of Kentucky will produce this year, not quite, but almost half, is shipped uh, overseas. Uh, primarily, uh, the, big, the three big markets overseas, Australia, Germany, and Japan, uh, the Japanese really, really drive that bourbon market. So when you take into account um, you can't speed up the time process and age is what many people seek in their bourbon. And so there's got to be an aging process. Um, it's enjoying a, a wave of popularity across not just the South but across the country. And on top of that, half of it's being exported it's a little different, a little more unique from, say, wine and scotch in that regard. Yeah, I started to realize that um, bourbon and whiskey had a more international impact when during this trade war, and we were talking about what we were going to levy tariffs on and back and forth and what China was going to give tariffs on. Uh, Jack Daniels was one of the names brought up of what China was going to tariff on our exports. <laughs> and I just, you just don't think about people sitting around Beijing or, <laughs> yeah, I mean, or wherever, uh, Shanghai having, having a bourbon or a Jack, maybe a Jack and Coke or what have you. I have no idea. But that just doesn't seem to strike me as a Chinese drink. And Lee, you, you again taught me something I did not know that, I mean, there's large export markets. I would not have thought 50% was exported. Or roughly thereabouts, maybe a little bit, a few, a few shipments, what have you. But I do remember going back in time. Now, this is about 15, maybe even 20 years ago. I was at a wedding for one of my wife's friends, and she was marrying a Dutchman, a guy truly from, from Holland. He was uh, from, from The Hague. And all of his Dutch friends were there, and the, the wedding was up in Tennessee. Um, they could all speak English much better than most of the Americans that were there, uh, <laughs> without a doubt. And they all wanted to drink what they called American scotch. That's the only thing that they wanted to drink the entire time they were here It was American scotch. And they drained bottle after bottle of bourbon. So it's, you know, when Lee, I hadn't thought about it really since until you brought up that they're exporting so much to Germany. Now, obviously, Germany, Germany and the Netherlands completely different. But there does seem to be an international taste or recognition that while it is an American spirit, it's also a pretty darn good one, too. Well, the, the price point until about five or six years ago had remained relatively steady, and um, it was viewed as, an, uh, as 
you know, an American luxury product. And typically, like many luxury goods that are produced around the world, certain markets are very attracted to that. And obviously, you know, bourbon has had has enjoyed that notoriety globally. Now, I got to ask, so I see some people that drink whiskey, they drink it neat, and some people drink it on the rocks. Is there a certain kind of rules or social faux pas around when to put ice on it and when not to versus whether it's bourbon or whiskey or what's what's kind of the rules around that? Sam, that's an interesting question, and it's really one of those one of those things. There's really no wrong answer that might explain kind of some more of the popularity of bourbon. Uh, you've got your purist out there that will only drink it one way. Uh, generally, I w- you know, from my personal perspective, I would prefer, especially if it's something that's older and somewhat harder to pro- procure, I would prefer to drink that neat to enjoy all the flavors. And then if I feel like it needs an ice cube on it, I would add that to it. Some folks want to hit it straight with ice. Some folks want to put water on it. And then there's the old-fashioned college way, uh, as John referred to earlier, with ginger ale or a Sprite Zero, and um, you completely alter the uh, the taste of it. So, but my preference would be to would be neat. I would, I would guess the Coke and the Sprite is more just to get it down your gullet as fast as you can. Uh, <laughs> now, Lee, I appreciate you giving me some credit for age because I mean there wasn't a Sprite Zero back when I was uh, mixing drinks out in the uh, out in the parking lot outside the stadium. No such well, thing as Sprite giving, Zero. I'm giving you credit for evolving into now, Sprite <laughs> Zero now. now. Now, you did bring a, you bring up back in the college days. I tell you, I mean, Lee and I are roughly the same age, if not the same age. We went to college back in the late 80s. And back in the late 80s, you mentioned we're mixing this rock gut bourbon with, you know, sodas and what have you. Uh, but I do happen to recall growing up here in Alabama, the top shelf booze uh, bourbon, at least in my estimation, that you could find. Um, was maybe something like a wild turkey. Um, and that was considered kind of premium. That truly was on the top shelf of the liquor stores here. And then on the bottom shelf, you had things like Kentucky Gentleman and a few other things that, Sam, you probably don't even know what Kentucky Gentleman is. I don't. <laughs> you don't need to know, and Lee will attest to that. And then all of a sudden, then we moved into a Knob Creek, and then we moved into a whole bunch of others, and now there's so many different bourbons that I can't even, um, I can't even name them all. Now, with that being said, Lee, I, I, I'm, next time I see you, whether or not I'm in Mobile or whether or not uh, you're in Birmingham, I'd like to challenge you to something. I'm going to get maybe a, a shot of wild turkey, a shot of a shot of a Knob Creek, and then a shot of whatever your favorite super top shelf would be. And if I blindfolded you, do you think you could taste the difference between the three? Um, I'd certainly be willing to take that bet. <laughs> okay, we'll add a fourth shot, and that'll be a – uh, okay, it'll be five shots that you'll have to take. Like an Evan Williams or a it'll be, Club 400. Maybe a Club 400, the six shots you'll have to take. And we'll see how, you, see how you're doing at the end of this. Start off with like yeah, Club 400, then a Kentucky Gentleman, an Old Crow, Jim Beam White Label, and then a couple of whatever your choices are. And, Lee, I'm going to ask you at the end of these six shots. And right in about, I'm going to ask you about ten minutes after the last of the six shots to name each one and see whether or not you can do it. You think you're up for it? Well, you're assuming I'll still be standing up after six shots. <laughs> we really stretched this out. We went from four shots and asking right after to six shots and waiting ten minutes. 
<laughs> yeah, I was waiting on you to keep going. It was probably going to be ten shots before you were done. No, that's a that's a little bit much. That's hazing, uh, and I'm far too old to be hazing anyone. So, but if, yeah, it just rattled off a whole bunch of different different names. Um, is there any sort of nostalgia? Do you, you think as, as as the bourbon craze goes on, do you think there will be any sort of nostalgia at some point, kind of percolating up, maybe from the Gen Y, the Gen Z, for that old sort of return to uh, you know kind of I don't know, some retro, hip, chic type, cool type deal, like what you're seeing with beer. You go into a, a bar and people are drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon, which is awful, but it's got some sort of retro chic in it. Do you think we might see something like that go on with like an old Forester or something that's a decent bourbon, a decent kind of working man's bourbon, old man with a cigar type bourbon? Do you think, do you think we'll eventually see a trend like that? Um, you're, there's some of that going on now, John, I would say, and and part of it is – uh, you know, you mentioned Old Forester. You know, the what I always think of that is Old Forester '86, which was kind of what what we saw in college a lot. Um, you know, Old Forester is a brand that's you know a lot of these distilleries and most folks' estimation are, are trying to transform themselves as, as this craze goes on. And Old Forester is one that is now offering store owners, um, Alabama Beverage Control, folks like that, an opportunity to come in and pick private barrels and then sell them through their retail outlets. And that has become very popular. You see it at bars, country clubs. Um, you see it in state stores and package stores. And so I, I think there's a, a certain element of that that's already going on. A, a whole lot of names, that something I don't think a lot of people realize, a whole lot of those old nostalgic names that you referenced are already extinct in the fact that after, you know, the kind of the the decline of bourbon in the 70s and the 80s when vodka was kind of the drink of choice, a lot of those went bankrupt and they were just never resurrected in terms of coming back around. And so there has been a craze uh, by a lot of collectors to collect what what is referred to as old dusties, which are bottles that were made 50s, 60s, 70s, that have never been opened, that would still have tax stamps on them. And those bottles command super premiums and what they refer to as the, the bourbon secondary market. So there is some of that going on. You mentioned the, the, the phrase craze, and now I'm kind of wishing I could go back in time and, and empty out the uh, ABC store in Winston-Salem and get some of that Kentucky gentleman I used to drink and just save it, <laughs> <laughs> stick it in a box. Um, but you did mention the word craze. I mean, do you have any sort of insight, any sort of crystal ball? I mean, if you had a crystal ball, how much longer do you think this would this this craze, at least at this at this fever pitch, how much longer do you think it really can sustain itself? Gosh, John, that's that's really anybody's guess. But if you if you take the kind of what I shared earlier in regards to how much is exported and the amount that is exported grows up or grows each year goes up incrementally percentage wise and you take into account that I think through the end of 2018 there were just shy of 7 million barrels of bourbon on the ground um, waiting to be bottled and there are so many you know, new plans by various distilleries in terms of opening new production facilities and storage facilities 
and you couple that with the craft bourbon, craft whiskey craze, which the number of craft distillers, you know, from say 2010 or 12 was probably in the mid 20s is now between 450 and 500 in this country alone. You know, it sure feels like it might have, you know, some time left. What that time is, is it 10? Is it 15? Is it 20? I don't know. What I do know is there's a lot of popular brands um, that I like, that a lot of my friends like, that are not what I would consider top shelf, but are just good, especially given what they used to cost, are almost um, impossible to find now at ABC stores. They're impossible to find. Um, You know, they come maybe two or three times a year and people stand in line. So it, it sure seems to be, you know, crescendoing still in, in that crazed direction. The length of time or the duration, it's just no way to no way to tell. Well, man, that's a, that's a perfect way of end this. I think it's fair to say that we will never look at bourbon the same way again, at least the way that I used to look at it as just a necessary evil for a football tailgate. I think that that Pandora's box, if you will, that Pandora's barrel, if you will, Sam, you is uh, is opened up and, and bourbon is here to stay. And I think, Lee, I think you'd agree with that. I would. All right. Well, guys, uh, Sam, what else do you have here? That's all I have. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you learned a little bit about bourbon here today, because I certainly did. And this seems to be a tipple of choice for business people and business events around the country, and particularly down here in our section of the woods. But thank you for listening. We always love to hear from our listeners. And if you have any questions or comments, please let us know. You can send us an email to tradingperspectives.com. The trading, <laughs> trading perspectives at oakworthcapital.com is a better way of putting it. Or you can leave us a review on the podcast outlet of your choice. If you're interested in hearing more of what we have to say or how we think, you can always check out our blog, Common Sense, at oakworthcapital.com and look forward underneath the Thought Leadership menu tab. Sam, anything else? That's all I have. Lee, how about, how about you? Anything else here today? Nope. Guys, have a great day. You too. Thank you. Y'all, thanks for, thanks for listening.